Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. After many shows, it's become clear that homelessness is the issue on which so much of our urban life turns here in the Bay Area and across the state. But for all the attention that the crisis on the streets gets, it can feel like the same few facts and folklore get recycled over and over. Now for the last several years, the Benioff Housing and Homelessness Initiative at UCSF has conducted the largest survey of homelessness in California history and the largest since the mid-90s anywhere in the country. In its attempt to understand how people end up unhoused, what their experiences have been like, and what policies could actually help people get off the streets permanently. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a common bit of folklore about unhoused people on our streets. You'll hear people say that those folks were, quote, bust in from some other place. I've heard people say this for years. And the strangest thing is that you hear the same thing from Seattle to San Diego. Sometimes there's even an anecdote about some guy they heard about. But where's the actual data? This report from the Benioff Housing and Homelessness Initiative, delivers a representative sample of homeless people from across the state. 3,200 people surveyed, another 365 people were interviewed in depth about their experiences. That is to say, this is the best data we've got. And what does it say? Quote, nine out of 10 participants lost their housing in California. 75% of participants lived in the same county as their last housing. So yes, there's room for the anecdote about someone who came from elsewhere, but the bulk of the people who are experiencing homelessness are neighbors. That's just the tip of the iceberg with this report. You're welcome to take a look at it yourself. You can go to our website or you can go to homelessness.ucsf.edu. I should note also that this is our second show in a continuing series on homelessness. The first was from the former site of the Wood Street encampment and featured the voices of the people who had lived in that space. We'll be continuing to cover different angles on this crisis over the coming months. Okay, let's welcome in our first guest and one of the two lead authors on the report. Margot Cushell is director of the UCSF Benioff Homeless and Housing Initiative and principal investigator of the study. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start with how this study is different from past studies of homelessness. 
So one is its size and its um, uh, strength, but mostly it's that we tried to do something a little different. We tried to do what's called a representative sample of people across the state of California. The last big representative sample in the U.S. was from the mid-1990s. That means that we really worked hard and used all sorts of methods to get people in proportion to which they occur in the population. That's what it means to be representative. We did it in English and Spanish and used interpreters for other languages. We were in eight counties across our vast state that we selected to be able to stand in for the state. And we did something called mixed methods. Everyone in the study, so 3,200, got a survey that lasted about 45 minutes to an hour. And then about one in eight of those, or 365 people, we did an additional interview where we turned on the tape recorder and asked them a series of open-ended questions to get at the how things happened that, that they explained in the survey. So what gaps in information was this study trying to fill? We were really charged with asking um, who actually is homeless, getting away from the spot view of this is a person who's most visible or this is a person in my community who is homeless. Um, how did they come to be homeless? What what was happening in their lives before and what would have prevented their homelessness? Um, what their experiences are while they're homeless and what is keeping them homeless? What is keeping them from being housed? Really from their perspective, but using the best possible methods to get as close to the truth as, as we could. And it seems like the dominant thing you found was that the income of participants was just so low. Can you talk about the, those economic factors? Absolutely. One of the questions we asked people was, in the six months before you became homeless, um, what was your household income for each month and sort of average it over those six months? And the median household income across the state of California was $960 a month. Just for context in our state, the median um, cost of a one-bedroom apartment is $1,700 a month. And at the end of the day, whether or not people had mental health problems or substance use problems, whether or not they were sick or healthy, at the end of the day, really homelessness was about people not being able to pay the housing costs. Mm. I'll also just note, median household income in California is $7,000 a month. Too. So you're talking people with less than 15% of the median household income. Um, what did you discover about what people, what the circumstances of people's lives were before they began to experience homelessness? So one of the things we found was what we're describing is often a slow slide into homelessness. So about one in five people came directly from an institutional setting, um, a, a jail, a long stay in a jail, a prison. Um, drug treatment programs were a common uh, institutional stay, mental hospitals or others. That was one in five. The rest of the folks came from housing where they had stayed for some period of time. But more of those, 60 percent of those who came from housing, came from housing where they didn't have any legal rights to the housing. They were often doubled up with family or friends. These were folks who had often been housed with a lease previously, lost it into forestall homelessness, were doing what they could. The other 40% came from what we call a leaseholder situation. But one of the things that we found is that people had had this like slow slide of things getting worse and worse in many cases. We heard lots of people where they moved from their two-bedroom apartment, somebody lost a job, somebody got sick, 
something happened in their house. Someone died. Something bad happened, um, and they had to leave. And they went, let's say, to rent a room in a house. So they all crowded into a room. Then something disrupted that, and maybe they moved in with friends or family. Maybe then that didn't go well, and they moved into their car, and then they lost their car, and they were on the street. So we saw lots of trauma and crises in people's lives that predated it. These are people who had really hard lives in general. Um, and then things got worse. And then what we learned is once they became homeless, then the wheels fell off the bus. Then things really got a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at those key moments where people are sliding down uh, the kind of societal scale, were there spots where interventions were happening, like were people accessing services? I think that was one of the most striking things is how few services people were accessing. Most people were um, felt that they were just sort of sliding down and they couldn't turn to help. I was struck by how few people even reached out for help. One of the things is people had very little warning for that last moment before they became homeless. Overall, a median of five days. The leaseholders had 10 days, the non-leaseholders one day before they knew they were going to become homeless. We asked people if they reached out for any help at any point um, before they became homeless, who they reached out to. The bottom line was only about a third of people had reached out to anyone. And that was more commonly reaching out to family or friends than it was to agencies, the government. We think it was people were just not even aware that there were services out there. When we tried to ask people in in-depth interviews, people were sort of saying, like, "What? where would I have reached out to? And so people didn't get a lot of help before this happened. We're talking about a new UCSF statewide study of homelessness, the largest of its kind in decades with Margot Cushell, director of the UCSF Benioff Homeless and Housing Initiative, Homelessness and Housing Initiative, and the principal investigator of the study. What questions do you have? This is some of the best data that's been created about homelessness in California, or maybe you've experienced homelessness. And what was the main factor for you that led you to that situation? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, and you can find us on social media. We're KQED Forum. So when you looked at people's experience of homelessness, Margot, where were they staying? Like, were they largely on the streets, what we would call fully unsheltered? Were they like, what was happening? Yeah, people were disproportionately unsheltered. So we asked the question three different ways. Where's every place you spent in the last six months while you were homeless? Where's the place you spent most and where were you last night? But the bottom line is over three quarters of people were primarily unsheltered. When we looked at where they had stayed most in the last six months, about um, 20-ish percent were in their car, about over 50 percent were just outside, and then the rest were in some form of shelter, predominantly homeless shelters, Occasionally, people were couch surfing or staying a night or two with friends or family. Mm. You know, I was surprised that how few people seem to have made it into the COVID era government programs, getting people into motels. Yeah, I mean, I think partly we were only looking at people who themselves were homeless. So so it, it is something to reflect on. It's possible, for instance, that the people who got help before they became homeless never became homeless and they wouldn't have been in our study. It's possible that the hotels did a good job of moving people into permanent housing. Some of the hotels were still 
open when we were in the field. We were in the field from October 21 to November 22, and they were in our sampling frame, meaning that we sampled from them in the proportion to which they were. But I think that most of the people we saw had not been in those. That could be good news in a way that the people who were in those left those to get into permanent housing and therefore weren't eligible to be in the study anymore because they were no longer homeless. Um, But I think it also represents just the vastness of homelessness in this state. And when 30,000 people got into the hotels, which is incredible, you know, we have over 171,000 people experiencing homelessness nightly in our state. Mm. Yeah. What did you learn about the kind of mental health problems that people had sort of going into these episodes of homelessness and also while they were experiencing? Yeah, certainly people had led deeply traumatic lives. I really like the um, musical chairs analogy that was put forth in Homelessness as a Housing Problem, a really great book about homelessness which talks about how if you have a game of musical chairs and you pull away a chair, if you ask a question, who's going to be standing? And there was, let's say, one person on crutches who didn't really know how to use them. Pretty good chance they would be the one standing. But if you ask a different question, why is there someone standing? Well, they're standing because there aren't enough chairs. I think that that analogy works here, that absolutely people who experience homelessness had had deeply traumatic lives, many, not all. Um, About 27% had been in a psychiatric hospital at some point in their lives. Almost one in three had attempted suicide at one point in their lives, Um, and that people had um, high amounts of what we call mental health symptoms, although it was predominant anxiety and depression. About half of people um, had serious symptoms of anxiety or depression. Um, About 12% currently had hallucinations. We're talking about a new UCSF statewide study of homelessness, the largest of its kind in decades with Margot Cushell, director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative and principal investigator on the study. We'll be back with more. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a new UCSF statewide study of homelessness, the largest of its kind in decades. And first up, we've got Margot Cushell. She's director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative and principal investigator of the study. Um, I want to get to what I think is one of the tough questions uh, about this study right off the, the top here of this segment. Paul in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. By the way, my grandmother was homeless after the 1906 earthquake, but she got 
back on her feet somehow with far few uh, support services than we have today. Anyway, apparently this report, uh, uh, the information given to the uh, researchers was self-reported. Uh, that doesn't mm-hmm. seem like empirical evidence to me. That uh, Was there any social security numbers? Was there any fingerprints? How do we know what these people are saying is true? They could say anything. That's not empirical evidence to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, is it? Well, it's a it's a survey used a survey, fairly common methodology. Um, how would you answer this question, uh, Margo? Yeah, surveys are one of the main ways that we know what we did. We did a lot to increase um, trustworthiness and increase truth. We didn't take people's names. We really made them comfortable, and they really had no incentive to lie to us. I will say, however, that empirical evidence um, uh, isn't that different from our findings. So, for instance, one of the ways we know movement amongst people experiencing homelessness, for instance, is among veterans, because we do have really good evidence for veterans because they are able to receive services through the VA and so they can tell where they are. That hasn't shown big movements of people into certain areas. So I guess I would ask, um, you know, we ask people a lot of information about like, what towns they were in, what state they were in, the kind of thing that it would be awfully hard if you came from somewhere else to be able to tell us about the small town in California that you had grown up in and tell us about that. So I guess, you know, if, if you choose not to believe surveys, that's um, up to you. But we did a lot to enhance um, truth, and I, I don't have any reason to not believe it. I mean, there was one statistic that gave me pause, particularly around drug use, yeah. um, Margo, you know, because we, in the study, people reported, I think it was about 22% had ever used uh, non-prescription opioids that weren't prescribed to them. But then 20% of people reported an overdose event. And that seemed like those numbers should be further apart. Like, how did you, like, specifically on on drug use, where it feels like there's st- shame and uh, stigma associated with it, how can people trust those numbers, particularly because it is such a, uh, a question about how homelessness works? So drug use numbers were um, high when we looked at lifetime substance use. Regular substance use um, was pretty high. I think it was about two-thirds of people had at some point in their lives had regular use of illicit substances. And currently about a third of people reported regular use three times or more. Mm-hmm. It's worth saying that many of the overdoses that we see, people may not knowingly be using any specific um, substance. So someone may, might be thinking they're using methamphetamines, they might combine it with something else, or or there may be contamination. Um, so that didn't particularly surprise me. We know that many drug overdoses are combinations of multiple different drugs, and we know that the drug supply itself is poisoned. People, you know, over a third of people told us that they were regularly using um, illicit substances, um, and and more than that in lifetime. So it wasn't like people weren't telling us that they mm-hmm. were using. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted to highlight something you said, which was that I think given the amount of attention to fentanyl in our yeah. cities, the study really highlights that methamphetamine yeah. is kind of the drug that's most widely being used. Yeah, that was really striking to us. Um, And there's clearly a shift in drug use patterns. Like, for instance, you can see 
that over people's lifetime, cocaine use was much higher than it currently is, which is about 3% of people were regularly using cocaine. We know that drug use patterns shift and change with time. Um, fentanyl is um, extremely you know, extremely dangerous. Um, small amounts can be, you know, horrifyingly dangerous. But clearly the story amongst illicit drug use, only a third of people were using substance, illicit substances regularly. Um, but amongst those, it's really being driven by methamphetamine use, often in combination with other drugs. But methamphetamine is the one that really stood out. So I want to bring in a couple of representatives of a really interesting component of this study. Um, you all in conducting this study created a lived experience, lived expertise advisory board, um, people who had experienced in some form in their life um, homelessness um, and who are, are part of the team in creating this report. Um, Robin Rose Hamer is uh, one of the representatives. She's now the vice president at Capital Impact in Sacramento. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We also have Jessica Gianola, uh, another member of the Lived Expertise Advisory Board based in Chico, where she works as a housing case manager. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so, Robin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, experience of homelessness and how you think it informed the way that you approach this work? Sure. Uh, I've ex had two experiences of homelessness, once as a, a youth and uh, once as an adult. Um, the time when I was a youth, my family um, was uh, just not able to afford our apartment lived in a single parent household. My mom was a teacher. And uh, so I went to live with a friend and my mom and my sister also went to go live with a different friend. And I had a, a daughter, I was a teen parent. And so my daughter and I lived with my friend and that was my first experience of what is formerly now referred to as a host home. And uh, that experience was informative and important for me because as an adult, when I became the nonprofit leader for an agency serving youth experiencing homelessness, I was able to convince the city to invest in a host homes program uh, because I had a firsthand experience that it could work. Mm. So that was uh, a really important uh, life experience. And I was really grateful, even then, as a 16-year-old to be, have some place to go, understanding that it, it wasn't necessary, it wasn't required. People don't have to open their home to you. Um, and then as an adult, um, my um, family uh, was a part of the mortgage crisis. Um, my mm. ex-husband had recently lost his job and we weren't able to make our mortgage and, and had to move out of our home that we owned uh, due to foreclosure. And uh, again, had the opportunity to stay with a friend. So while I've never experienced unsheltered homelessness, I, I certainly do mm -hmm. understand the situation that Margo described about not having the safety net programs readily available or calling for a service that you hoped to be available and it wasn't uh, and not being able to access uh, any assistance to be able to stay housed. Mm. Yeah, Robin, thank you for that. Jessica, how about you? How did your lived expertise, how have you brought this to bear on, on this work? 
Um, well, with this lived experience, uh, mine, mine is pretty in-depth as well. I had generational poverty growing up. Um, and, and largely growing up, I didn't have any housing um, except sparse and living in tents and <clears throat> sleeping on a bench and um, broken trailers, you name it. And, and also as an adult from surviving domestic violence and moving into a, um, a domestic violence shelter. Um, so there's just a wide range of how this, these, these unhoused experiences happen. And that helps me when I'm working with a, with a population that I help serve now and working on this board of thinking of things that I experienced and things that maybe generally aren't easily shared with others. So formulating questions can better reach them and their needs. And um, I found that very valuable. What, what's something you think you would notice or think to ask that maybe somebody else wouldn't? I think about people with children um, because we tried to stay under the radar quite a bit. We didn't want to have CPS involvement, so we hid um, our our severity of our situation pretty well. Um, so I think that asking people with children um, really if they have resources, if they know where to go, because we didn't know um, we didn't know any of the resources out there because we didn't we were afraid to ask. So just yeah. being able to um, establish that sense of trust with the people you're working with and asking if they know where to go and providing that information, even if they're not able to say, yes, I do need it. Um, knowing to provide it is, is something that gives them a tool to use to help them. Yeah. Um, we are talking about a new UCSF statewide study of homelessness, the largest of its kind in decades, with two members of UCSF's Lived Experience Advisory Board for the study, Robin Rose Hamer and Jessica Gianola, who you just heard. We're also joined by the principal investigator uh, of the study, Margot Cushell. We are going to get to your calls and comments. Love to hear if you were you know, at risk of homelessness. What did it take to prevent it? Or what questions do you have just about this study and about homelessness in California? The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or KQED Forum. Uh, one question, Margo, that I had for you, and it's an amazing thing to see how many people went straight from an institution onto the streets because they're coming out of a, a, an area where they should have been provided with transition services, it seems, right? Yeah. yeah. One of the things that was so striking to us about that was how few received any transition services. We were pretty generous in what we took to count. So if you got a list of um, federally qualified health centers or health centers that accept folks without insurance, that counted as receiving transition help with health care, just to give you an example. And fewer than 20% of people leaving these institutions had received any help with health care, with housing, or with signing up for benefits or other income sources. Um, and I think it really speaks to a systems failure and an opportunity. It can mm -hmm. be hard to know amongst a lot of people at risk for homelessness who's going to become homeless. It's not hard to know when people are leaving an institution and have no further place 
to go. Um, and we need to really do a better job there. That provides an area of focus that we could, if we could make a dent there, we could make a dramatic reduction in the numbers of people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it just seems like from a societal level, there should be support for that particular kind of uh, policy change. Absolutely. I think this would benefit us all. It does nothing for cost, for public safety, and certainly for the lives of the people experiencing it to um, compel people to leave institutions right back into homelessness or right into homelessness for the first time. Yeah. Um, Margot, Anthony writes in to say, just which private or government agencies could a person who is about to become homeless go for help? And what kind of help could they get? I'm not homeless, but I don't have a clue. It seems that we don't advertise what few sources of help might be available. That's such a great question. And I think the truth is that there is help, although it's more limited than it should be. Um, there are certain um, you know, movements, for instance, in San Francisco to give um, people access to an attorney prior to an eviction. This has been a very evidence-based way to decrease evictions, to try to find a, an outcome that works for both parties. Um, those are done through like legal aid organizations or housing organizations. More and more, there's going to be movement towards having homelessness prevention. In New York, for instance, in New York City, they've done a really good job with homelessness prevention. So if you ride the subway or in a bus, you might see a sign, are you worried about losing your housing? Call us. You can go to a community-based organization which has resources, and they've been able to show that th- that it is highly cost-effective. Those resources are really a variety of things. They can help you pay back rent. They can mediate with your landlord. They can buy a bunk bed for your sister so that she allows you to stay and your you know child to stay with your sister. They really do whatever needs to be done, and they've <laughs> tracked outcomes and have shown that when they target this correctly and and they ask you a series of questions to try to make sure how at risk you are, and they only give it to people who sort of score high enough that they're at risk. Um, they've been able to show um, really significant reductions in homelessness amongst those who who get it compared to, let's say, those who were one point below on the score and so just were similar but didn't get the mm-hmm. services. Um, and they've been able to show cost effectiveness, that it's much cheaper to do that. We need to scale up those. They're harder to do than than you would think. And I think one of the things we recommended is that they should be embedded in mainstream systems so that when you go to your healthcare setting, because most people are getting healthcare, you know, can they ask you the key questions of are you at risk and therefore do it? I can think of another example that does this really well is the VA, where every mm-hmm. veteran who gets VA services is asked at every visit, you know, are they currently homeless? And they're asked in a sort of appropriate way. And are they at risk of homelessness? Again, in an appropriate way. If they are, they get immediately sent for intervention through those homelessness among veterans um, and through other interventions have decreased by over half um, in the last decade, while homelessness among other groups have gone up. Marco, do we not have that kind of community-based organization and intervention in the Bay Area? I mean, I just for people who I think see themselves as having voted for taxes that are supposed to be funding these kinds of homelessness services, uh, I think they might be surprised that we wouldn't have such things. 
we do have them, but um, they're not always brought to scale. So I can think, for instance, in Oakland, there's Keep Oakland Housed, which has had a lot of success in reaching out to folks in high um, high risk areas. Um, but these things cost money and they need ongoing funding. They're definitely homelessness prevention efforts. In San Francisco, I think the question is, can they be brought to scale? And I and I don't want to oversimplify it. It's there are so many people at risk that like you have to be able to figure out who's most at risk to make it cost effective. They're hard to do. There are definitely nascent programs, but they haven't really been brought to scale. Yeah. I mean, why haven't they been brought to scale given that San Francisco specifically has been funding homelessness services at a at a level that you know is higher than some other places. Yeah, San Francisco is is doing this. Don't don't get me wrong. Um but they're trying to do so many things at once and we focus so much on how much San Francisco is spending but just to say, we have a huge yawning gap. A lot of the money that San Francisco spends is on people who um, they need to keep housed who were homeless many years ago. And there's, you know, the federal government is not paying for rental subsidies. And so they're still, San Francisco is still paying to keep people housed. I think we have so much to do at once that this is a deep, deep structural deficit we've gotten ourselves into across the country in California, and it's going to take funds to get out of it. So it's not that we're not doing it. It's that it's that maybe not brought to the scale that it needs to be at. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to a bunch of your calls and comments after the break. We're talking about a new UCSF statewide study of homelessness, the largest of its kind in decades with Margot Cushell, principal investigator of that study. Robin Rose Hamer, who's one of the representatives of UCSF's Lived Expertise Advisory Board. She's the vice president at Capital Impact in Sacramento now. And Jessica Gianola, also a member of the Lived Expertise Advisory Board. Based in Chico, she works as a housing case manager now. We are going to get to uh, so many more questions about where we go from this data with this data, who's going to see it, who's going to use it, and get to a bunch of your calls and comments. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a new huge UCSF study of homelessness with Margot Cushell, principal investigator, and two members of the project's lived expertise advisory board, Robin Rose Hamer and Jessica Gianola. Let's bring in another call. Kathleen in Martinez. Welcome. Hi, thank you. First time caller. Um, this whole topic is really close to my heart because my sister was in crisis. She lived in um, low-cost housing in Sonoma County, and she um, had like a mental health crisis. She got admitted to the hospital, and the crisis intervention center um, took her and evaluated her. And the, what's really great about it is the county of Sonoma would not let her go. She got evicted in the in the meantime from her low-cost housing. So the county of Sonoma actually found her placement in a residential uh, facility for adults. And she still lives there to this day. It's been mm. a couple years. And so... That's a success story. I think they wouldn't let her go because they knew that she'd be out on the street. And she mm. just definitely has a lot of problems. So um, I guess that's a situation where the system worked. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to share that. Uh, but yeah. it took ha her having like a crisis situation. But luckily everything, like the stars were aligned. She she went to the hospital and social workers got involved. Caseworkers were assigned. She just, uh, it's a situation yeah. where, like I said, things, things worked out for her. Now, I have to say, uh, living in a congregate living situation through COVID was not exactly mm. a great thing, but, but mm -hmm. she's thriving and she's probably in a better situation now than she was before. Yeah. Kathleen, so, thank you so much. It's good to remember sometimes the systems that we're putting in place do work. They do keep people from, um, you know, sliding into homelessness. Um, Margot, Randy um, wanted to share kind of someone who's on the other side of this experience. And um, Kathleen, thanks again for, for sharing yours. Randy writes, I have a friend who seems to be teetering on the edge of homelessness. You mentioned that many people who may be sliding into homelessness do not reach out to the government or institutions for help. And many asked in the survey do not know who to reach out to. Who can they reach out to? My friend is staying with elderly parents in Alameda County. What can I do to help? Thank you for asking that question. Um, I think that um, it's great that you're involved, and I'm so glad your friend is able to stay with their parents now, but is teetering. Um, depending where they are in Alameda County, there are different homelessness prevention options. Um, if they're actually in Oakland, there's Keep Oakland Housed. Um, in Alameda County, there's others. Sometimes the best thing to do is to call that um, Two one one number and and ask for help. The other thing is to go to a um, one of the nonprofits that does um, work with homelessness, a place like Bay Area Community Services 
or or others of our wonderful nonprofits who are really struggling upstream but doing everything they help and just learn about what they can do. Other resources might be the healthcare provider's office. Hopefully um, there, there might be, um, they hopefully will have a social work team who can provide advice. I want to say that the resources are, um, it can be overwhelming. And even with a friend like you who is obviously trying everything, it can be really hard to know how to navigate this system. And that's something that needs to change. This should be something that's easier to know what to do um, so that we can keep people where they are and keep them from sliding into homelessness. So thank mm-hmm. you for all of your help and for asking that question. Yeah. Let's get a, another call in here. Matthew in San Francisco. Hi. Uh, I'm calling because um, I used to edit the uh, the street sheet in San Francisco, which is a newspaper sold by homeless people. And uh, as the editor of that newspaper, what I learned is that even when people are presented with high-quality data about homelessness, um, false beliefs about homelessness uh, are very persistent. So I was curious whether um, any part of the study included thinking about how to present this data in a way that will sort of cause people to absorb it in a way that can create support for effective solutions to homelessness. Marga? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think that was in some ways... um, I will tell you my reluctance with doing this is that, you know, you can you can get high quality data and if nobody listens, it doesn't change. We've certainly talked to a lot of people and tried to um, try to think through how um, we could make um, these results more understandable to people. I think, um, first of all, I want to say I love street sheets, so thank you for what you do. Um, um, but but I also think that um, there is a lot of talk and work right now in trying to figure out how to, um, how to help people understand um, and knowing that facts don't often change people's minds, that storytelling can change people's minds. I um, am so grateful for incredible lived expertise advisory board members who are willing to share their own personal stories and were willing to teach us about what has what works and what they thought would work. We're certainly talking to people with expertise in communications to try to figure out um, what what will help people understand. And we really wanted to make it readable and accessible and hope that people will read it and think about it and maybe put a pause on their preconceived notions and think through um, what we presented. But it certainly is a challenge. I will also say that there are people who, for reasons, are really never going to change their mind and and that's that's where they are. I think we're really trying to talk to the folks who are open to hearing about it, hoping to use things like storytelling and things to help um, to help bring it home to people and make it um, make it accessible. Let's bring in uh, Drew in Berkeley. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for this important uh, dialogue. Uh, I'm down the st- I'm in West Berkeley and I'm down the street from an encampment and I talk to people quite a bit on the street how they're feeling and my question is throughout the state in different towns and cities are there any kind of uh, model programs or ways of thinking about homelessness that um, come up in the survey that you might note to us in our different towns as uh, programs that we might model. Thank you very much. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. Why don't we throw this one first to the lived expertise uh, advisory board members. Uh, Robin? Yes, I appreciate the question because, you know, it's each community is a little bit different, but um, I, I found that there is a process or policy of the safe grounds, and that is that the local municipality cites an area that it would be okay for people to uh, raise up an encampment, and then they build uh, sort of self-governance structure so that people who are living there have the opportunity to create uh, guidelines and, and the rules for the space. But what makes it unique from a, a clandestine uh, encampment is that there are municipal services like trash and water and uh, oftentimes either showers or um, bathroom facilities. And so that model is, is one that uh, is a both and. It helps people who are not able to move out of unsheltered homelessness immediately be in a safe and safe place, but also helps to make sure that there are services there and, and helps the, keep the community uh, clean. Mm -hmm. Jessica? Um, if I understand the question and, and how that is something that's going to be more um, sustainable for people and helpful in having the group setting, uh, it does provide that level of, of security and support and a spot where case managers can go to to help people get out of a situation if they are working with them. Um, and ideally, you could get resources to them versus being spread around town. Um, so that can help in the meantime, but really what they need is that affordable housing piece to get them out of that situation. Mm. And for you, because you do work with people doing case management around housing, you're talking about no income housing being necessary, right? Not just low income housing. Absolutely. We have population. There are people who have no income and they, they still need housing. Housing is something that every human being needs access to. And every city should make sure that they have that resource built in. Otherwise, they end up on the street and not everyone has family to lean on. Um, sometimes family is the reason why they're homeless to begin with. It could be an abusive um, situation or neglect, you name it. Um, so people without support and income still need a place that's affordable for them, even when they have no income. Yeah. You know, we, Margo, we have um, a difficult comment here. Um, a listener writes in to say, I was made homeless in San Francisco in 2016 due to my much younger flatmates changing the locks on me. I deferred to housing laws and they wanted to enforce a majority rule system. One day while I was out, they changed the locks went into my closet, packed up some belongings and left them in the hall. The next week, after not having slept for days, I was violently sexually assaulted, trying to take a nap on the couch of someone I had known for years. Although I had a job and never faltered at work, I turned to alcohol and drugs to self-medicate to continue working and being presentable under duress. And it kind of ties into another question that Deanna had about the mental health problems that are caused by homelessness as people struggle to deal with these situations. Can you talk a little bit? And I'm so sorry to that listener who had that experience. Yeah, I want to um, 
thank that listener for sharing their harrowing experience and um, for their bravery and surviving that. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I'm sorry to say how resonant that was, how many people had similar experiences. Um, We found, for instance, that 10% of all of our participants had been sexually assaulted during this episode of homelessness. Over a third had been physically assaulted. And we heard from many, many people about when they lost their housing, everything else fell apart, their safety, their mental health, that many people did um, find that their mental health symptoms got much, much worse because they became homeless, that those experiences were so traumatic. They were sleep deprived. They were assaulted. They were terrified. They developed um, post-traumatic stress disorder type symptoms, anxiety, depression. And many people did um, tell us that it was the experience of homelessness that drove them to either use or increase their use of drugs or alcohol as a way of coping um, when there was so little help to be had and the experience was so searing and traumatizing. You know, as we talk about perspective solutions, you know, you've been advocating for some of the policy solutions that are in this report for for quite some time, what's kind of been become known as, quote, housing first kind of policies. Was there anything in this survey that surprised you or changed the way that you're approaching the kind of packet of policy solutions that you'd like to see roll out? I was somewhat surprised by how optimistic people were that relatively low levels of financial intervention would have turned the tide for them. I um, We asked people if they had gotten certain interventions in the period before they became homeless, would it have meaningfully prevented their homelessness for two years or more? 70% thought three to $500 a month would have, 82% thought a one-time five to $10,000 um, would have. And then in the in-depth interviews, people sort of explained to us how that would have worked. It would have they had enough, they were working, it would have gotten them first and last month's rent to be able to move to a new place. It would have paid back back rent. People told us that it would have allowed them to maintain their jobs, maintain their health. So I think that I was surprised, actually, by people's optimism at relatively low amounts. And it made me um, think that we need to lean harder into those prevention dollars. So that was a little bit surprising. There's no question um, that people are suffering horribly and that their mental health and physical health is in bad shape, that many people are um, not everyone, but you know, there are many people are using. And I think that it really brings home how much as we move people back into housing, which is the only way to end homelessness, that we provide enough supports to allow people to thrive in those situations. Let's get in uh, a last call here. Michael in Nevada. Welcome. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you for your time and all the uh, stimulating dialogue. I'm a little disappointed in the conversation, I have to say. I think I heard uh, San Camiones on on forum in the past, and he really reframed his former reporter for LA Times and a a real Mm -hmm. expert on uh, social issues. I think he was with you, Alexis, but... um, you know, the, the framing to me is, is really, this is a drug problem. You know, we have a, a horrible, horrible drug crisis, whether it's Chico, Mendocino County, Marin County, San Francisco, Tenderloin, Marina. I mean, the homeless encampments are fueled by drug use. I, I'm not trying to criminalize addiction here, but 
like the frame to me is really this is a drug crisis. This is a drug crisis on the scale we've never seen with incredibly addictive drugs. And um, I'm just disappointed that that is like kind of the last topic people talk about when um, addiction seems to be feeling the crisis. And uh, I thank you all for your time and insight today. Thanks, Michael. We've got um, Sam Quinones coming on, actually, I think uh, next week. Um, Margo, I assume that you disagree with the framing of this as a, as a drug problem. Look, it's not that I don't think that um, people experiencing homelessness have higher drug use than the general population. It's not that I don't think people need help with that. But for instance, if you look at communities that have high and low rates of homelessness across communities, Communities with the highest rates of homelessness are those with the highest housing costs, the biggest disconnect between people's ability to pay and their housing costs. It does not go at all with drug rates. The highest um, drug rates in the um, country are in areas like the um, Appalachia or the Rust Belt. Those have some of the lowest rates of homelessness. California scores relatively low on the percentage of the population who use drugs. Um, but we have the highest, some of the highest rates of homelessness. I'm not trying to say that there are not people who have significant drug problems who need our help. But as a physician who treats many people with drug problems, I can tell you the impossibility of addressing those problems while people are outside. Once people get into housing, that's where we make real progress. So I'm not saying that folks don't have drug and alcohol problems, but as you can see, a third of people were regular users of drugs across um, the state um, who experienced homelessness. But when we look at why California has such a bad problem, we do not have a worse drug problem than most of the country. In fact, we do better, but we have the worst homelessness problem, or one, because we have such impossibly high housing costs. So I think it's um, depending on how you look at the question. Um, and it's also how do we get to a solution? 6% of people in our study were in inpatient drug treatment during their time that they were homeless. But the treatment ended, they didn't have housing, they came back and were homeless again. Thank you for that. Um, just wanted to apologize. We had some technical difficulties today. Sound isn't as pristine as usual. Um, our apologies. We've been talking about a new UCSF statewide study of homelessness, the largest of its kind in decades. We've been joined by Margot Cushell, director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative and the principal investigator on the study. Thanks so much, Margot. Thank you for having me. We've also been joined by two representatives of the Lived Expertise Advisory Board, Robin Rose Hamer and Jessica Gianola. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Mina Kim is back. Enjoy that, everyone. Stay tuned. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.